How are you all doing this morning? So far, so good. Okay. There was a priest in the Philippines, and he just carried for years this awful burden of guilt from a secret sin that he had committed many years before. And he'd repented, he'd asked God to forgive him, confessed it, but he had no sense of forgiveness or release. And there was a woman in his church who said that she had visions, and in these visions, she had conversations with Jesus. Now, the priest was a bit skeptical about this, and so to test her, he said to this woman, well, well, next time you see Jesus, you ask him, what was the sin that your priest committed when he was in seminary or in um, Bible college? And so she agreed. And a few days later, he asked her, well, did Christ visit you? And she said, yes. What did he say? What was the sin that I committed when I was at Bible college? And she said, he said to me, he's forgotten. (laughs) He doesn't remember. Well, I guess we'll never know whether that lady was telling the truth or not about these visions. But what is true is that God does not remember the sins that he has forgiven. And that's not that God is forgetful, but he chooses not to remember. Jeremiah 31 and verse 4, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You know, that kind of forgetting is not a human attribute. Now, we can, you know, walk from the kitchen to the laundry or the garage or something to get something. By the time we've got there, we forgot what we've came for. Okay, yeah, you all know what that's like. But to forget some sin that we did or a sin that someone did to us, no, we don't usually do that. Now, of course, there are sins that we definitely should not forget. We've got to learn from those things. There are sins that other people have done to us that we should not forget. Yes, we forgive them, but we can never trust those people again. It would be dangerous to forget. But, you know, like that priest, most of us have probably got things that we need to stop remembering because God has both forgiven and forgotten those sins. Now, guilt that bad feeling that that priest had, is the feeling that we get when we do something wrong. It's a bit like the warning light on our dashboard, that little light that comes on that tells us there's a problem and we need to do something about it. Well, so far, so good. But if we deal with our guilt in the right way and that warning light stays on, and we just go around feeling bad and burdened like that priest, weighed down with guilt and condemnation, then something is not working. You know, have you ever sinned and asked God to forgive you, and you know that he's heard you, that he's forgiven you, but, you know, you keep feeling guilty, so you ask him to forgive you again, and again, and again, and again. Is that what confession of sin is supposed to do? Is that how it works? No, it's not. When we confess our sins, God wants us to know that we are forgiven, 
that that particular transaction is finished, over. We've got to let ourselves off the hook and move on. Now, why is that? Just so that we can feel good? Well, absolutely, that is a part of it. You know, God wants us to feel forgiven. And look at it this way. If, if we order something online, a purchase, and we pay for it, we want to get that thing, don't we? I mean, you see all the time about people who order stuff and they don't get it. I saw about a man who bought a mini digger. He paid for this digger, paid a lot of money, and it never arrived. How does a digger get lost in the mail? I have <laughs> no idea. But we all want to actually receive what we paid for. Well, God is exactly the same. Jesus is the same. He paid the highest price we could ever imagine for the forgiveness of our sins. And, you know, he really wants to get what he paid for, and that wasn't to see us, once we've confessed, walking around under this big dark cloud of condemnation. So after we've confessed and repented and done whatever we need to do to put things right, that means that we should feel forgiven and we're not supposed to carry on walking around feeling guilty. Now, of course, some sins have natural consequences. We all know that and we have to live with those things. But that does not mean that it cancels out forgiveness. Now, I just want to read a few verses of Hebrews 10, 1 to 4, and this may not make a, a lot of sense at the moment, but I'll explain it in just a second. And this is talking about the Old Testament law. It says, It can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worship, worshippers would have been cleansed once for all, and here it is, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the background here is that the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins is just so much better, so superior compared to the Old Testament um, system of sacrifices and things like that. He's saying that the old system is just a shadow compared to the new system, which is the real deal. And part of his evidence that proves that the problem of sin wasn't dealt with under that old sacrificial system, the evidence here is that the people didn't feel forgiven. They still felt guilty. So therefore, when it's real, they shouldn't feel guilty. Now, the reason that they still felt guilty was that the old system was just a temporary cover. And those sacrifices just covered sin from year to year until the real deal did away with the need for the temporary cover. And that was God's perfect sacrifice, God's lamb, his son Jesus. And the blood of Jesus gives that once and for all forgiveness of sins, and once a particular sin has been forgiven, then we're not supposed to be feeling guilty over it. Now I want to have a look at Peter and just to see another reason and this is a very important reason why we need to deal with guilt and condemnation. And I think this is 
pretty relevant to most of us right now. Peter's whole story is so real and so human that we often can see ourselves in it. We get the inside story of his weaknesses and failures. Instead of being a rock, we see him caving in and crumbling to pieces. But then we see what Jesus did by the power of his Holy Spirit, and of course that gives us all hope. Jesus called Peter to leave his nets and to follow him. And Peter followed immediately. He was a man of absolute surrender. He was a man of great faith. He walked on water. He had great spiritual insight. He was the first of the disciples to get the revelation that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. But then in the next breath, his mouth was getting him into trouble because he was trying to say to Jesus, hey, you can't die. But that, of course, was the whole reason why Jesus came. But most of you will know that Peter's most spectacular failure was on the night before Jesus was crucified. And he did exactly what Jesus had prophesied. He denied three times that he even knew him. And I'm going to read a little passage here from Luke 22, 54 to 62, but this is in a modern version, and I've crossed out a whole lot of words, so just listen, don't try and follow this. Um, from verse 54, they arrested Jesus, and Peter followed at a distance. When one of the servant women saw Peter stand, sitting by the fire, she looked straight at him and said, this man too was with Jesus. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. After a little while, a man noticed Peter and said, you're one of them too. But Peter answered, man, I'm not. About an hour later, another man insisted strongly, this man was with Jesus because he is also a Galilean. But Peter answered, I don't know what you're talking about. At once a rooster crowed. The Lord turned around and looked straight at Peter. Now when that rooster crowed, Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Their eyes met and then he just went out and he wept bitterly. So when Jesus looked at Peter, it's like Peter's heart broke. He must have just realized what a deep hole that he'd fallen into. And where are we? <laughs> you know, he had said that he had nothing to do with Jesus. He said they weren't friends. They had no connection. And then when he saw that, we can only imagine the humiliation, the remorse, the shame, the despair, whatever that he would have felt. But when Jesus looked at him, what kind of look was that? It's kind of interesting looking at what different commentators say about that. One said it was a look of disappointment. I don't think so. I don't think it was that. I go with the one who said that that, that, that look was about, hey, Peter, it's okay. I've lived with mankind for 30, 33 years. I've seen everything. I've seen my cousin John murdered by a deranged and wicked king. I've seen my parents fighting over petty stuff. I've seen you guys arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You know, I've seen the ugliness of pride and hypocrisy. I know human nature and I love you 
anyway. I think that's the one we'll go with. You know, we don't have to be Christians very long to see those kind of things. I mean, maybe not the murder. However, I read not long ago in the paper about someone who shot and killed someone in church because they sat in their seat. So just, just be careful where you sit. But we all know people, don't we, who call themselves Christians, but their words and their deeds don't actually show a lot of Christian character. And as human beings, warts and all with feet of clay, we've all failed. Just remember that look, that look that says, I love you anyway. So what happened to Peter? Well, to his credit, he got back with the other disciples. He didn't isolate himself. He was with them when they got the news about the empty tomb. He was with them when they were out on the lake and Jesus appeared on the shore. He was not paralyzed by guilt and condemnation. He received grace and forgiveness. And that's the thing that I so want us to notice here. You know, his denial of the Lord, that serious failure right at that time, didn't mean that he lost his place on the team. It didn't mean that he forfeited his role or was disqualified from God's plan for the early church. Jesus reinstated him. And then on the day of Pentecost and from that time on, we see him as a changed man. And the lesson or the encouragement for us is that, you know, like right now, perhaps more than ever before, as we're coming into this new era, we can be like Peter. We can know and we can feel that we are forgiven and that we can put the past behind us and just move forward into the plans and the purposes of God. And I just read this um, really cool testimony of a Christian leader who came to understand that Satan will try and do everything he can to use the guilt and the shame of our past sins to really limit our usefulness to God and to really try and rob and destroy what God has for us. Um, But he also just got that revelation that we have to stop remembering what God has forgotten. So I'll just read through this. Um, It's just in his own words. He was at a conference and he said, I was standing in the second row. It was a old, must have been a while ago, an Oral Roberts conference. He said, all of a sudden, Oral Roberts turned to me and said, you're called, aren't you? But there's something you're not letting go of. He told me to put my hands up and started hitting my elbows saying, let go, let go. To be honest, at that moment, I didn't know what Oral Roberts was talking about. I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. That night I went back to my hotel room and started crying. God, what is he talking about? What am I not letting go of? The Lord began to show me that it was the guilt of my past and the shame of certain things that I went through and hadn't let go. 
And he said, so often we keep going to God and asking for forgiveness for the same sin over and over when his word says that he will forgive our sins and he will remember them no more. He forgives us the first time we ask, but we're the ones that have a hard time letting it go. He goes on, my dad turned the whole running of his ministry over to me when I was coming out of a really bad time in my life. And I struggled because I thought this is absolutely the worst time to give me this position. One morning I was praying about it and I said, Lord, what do I do? Look at all the mistakes I've made. Suddenly I saw myself standing at the foot of the cross. I could see Jesus' feet. The blood that was dripping off his feet began to land on the top of my head. I looked up at him. The blood hit my head. And then the memories, I heard him saying that he was washing away the memories and the mental torment. I started crying. The blood got to my heart. He said, I heal the brokenhearted. I will restore your soul. And then the blood got to my feet and the residue of sin was gone. And he said, I see you through the blood of Jesus. And then he gave me a clipboard and some keys. He said, this is the assignment for your life and here are the keys that you need. I so needed that. There was no way I could fulfill my ministry with that sense of shame and failure. Notice that. Just note that his past sin, just like Peter, didn't disqualify him from God's calling. Anyway, he goes on again. There's no way you can fill your call if you feel like that. The devil tempts us to sin, and then when we sin, he fills us with guilt and condemnation. Let's not waste time reminding ourselves and God about something that's over. It's time for us to fulfill our destinies, but first we've got to get over the past and remember it no more. God doesn't. Our problem is that we want to keep reminding God about things that he has already forgiven and forgotten. Now just one very important requirement that I'll just put in here for forgiveness, of course, is that we forgive others. Okay, so I just want to go on and mention a few little keys to dealing with guilt and shame. And in a word, we deal with guilt by faith. Peter was a great man of faith, and through all his issues, he never lost his faith. Paul also was a man of great faith. And, you know, if you read through Romans chapter 7, you just see him agonizing over sin and, you know, all his little issues and things like that. And I think one verse that we can all identify with, verse 15, he says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. Yep, we all know that one. But then in the next chapter, chapter 1 and verse 8, the whole tone changes. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul doesn't keep on struggling with that toxic sense of guilt and shame. Now, how did that happen? Well, it happened, and as I said, this is the biggest key to overcoming guilt and shame because he had faith in Jesus. It happened by faith. And I just love the way that one commentator puts it. He ruthlessly trusted in the work of Jesus 
on the cross. And we will find freedom from guilt in exactly the same way. Whether it's true guilt over real sin or false guilt over past sins that have been confessed and repented of but we haven't been able to to let go of or past sins that the enemy is trying to use to paralyze us and torment us with. Like Paul, we've got to ruthlessly trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's a matter of faith. Faith in what God has done, faith in his word that tells us what he's done and what that means for us. And of course, as always, um, if God's word is going to set us free, then we have to know what it says. Now, just one good verse here, Isaiah 43, verse 25. God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Now, of course, as I've said, it's normal to feel guilty when we've done something wrong. If we've broken the law, if we've disobeyed God's word, you know, we've hurt someone. um, And guilt's a good thing because it motivates us to put something wrong, to to put things right. But putting things right um, involves confessing to God, repenting. In some cases, of course, we have to go to the person we've wronged and confess to them and make restitution in some ways. Um, I read about a man who heard a sermon on, on confession and afterwards he talked to the pastor because he was feeling really bad. He said he didn't know what to do. He actually did know what to do, but he didn't want to do it. He worked for a boat builder and he'd been stealing these expensive brass or copper nails or whatever it was, and he didn't want to tell his boss. Firstly, he'd lose his job, and secondly, this is awful, the boss would think he was a hypocrite, and all the times that he shared his faith with him would just be a complete waste. But eventually the guilt got too much, and so he did confess to his boss, and he offered to pay for the nails that he'd stolen. And his boss said, Well, I always thought you were a hypocrite. (laughs) He was right. But now I'm beginning to think there's something in this Christianity after all. Any religion that can make a dishonest workman come back and confess he'd been stealing copper, copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having. So that was interesting. But if we haven't done anything wrong, or if we keep on feeling guilty over something that we've done and put right, then that guilt is bad. Now, sometimes other people can dump that on us. Sometimes it comes from Satan most of the time. We can bring it on ourselves with our own self-talk, like, you know, oh, you know, did you have to say that? Why did you do that? You know, here we go again. Look at all the trouble, the damage, the pain that you've caused. Can't you ever do anything right? And all that kind of stuff that goes on in our head all the time. That doesn't help. Another thing that we need to do to overcome guilt is to keep short accounts. And I guess we all know that that means to confess things very quickly to God when we sin. And some of you might think, well, what's so hard about that? Believe me, it can be very hard for for those who habitually fall into the same old sin. Now, many, many years ago, we had a church school here, 
and there was a kid who was trying to ring out, but they didn't realise that you had to get, you know, press one to get a line out. And so every time they rang, the calls were coming through to my office. And of course, I tried to tell him, but he wasn't listening. And so one time, you know, he rang and I answered the phone and he was like, oh, no, not you again. <laughs> I was thinking the same, actually. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, if we're really honest, you know, how many of us, if we have something that we go to God with over and over and over, we can just imagine God sitting there saying, oh, no, not you again. <laughs> we do. But the thing is that God is not like that. God does not get sick of us. He doesn't think, oh, no, not you again. God wants us to come to him quickly, as often as we have to. He wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to get right with him. He wants to help us with our problem. And this obviously is a real battle for people who struggle with addictions and sinful habits. But it doesn't matter how often, just don't ever give up. God's grace is way, way stronger than your addiction. Way stronger. Persevere. Get prayer. Do whatever you need to do. Hold on to your faith. Be like Paul who ruthlessly trusted in the work of Jesus on the cross because somewhere along the line you will get your breakthrough. Now there are other scenarios that are just like you know, real points of entry for the enemy, for false guilt, times when we are particularly vulnerable, the loss of a loved one. Bereaved people often have regrets about things that seem to be perfectly normal at other times. So it's just a time to be careful. Um, it seems to me that women who have had abortions are particularly targeted sometimes for half their life. A 72-year-old woman said the abortion ruined my life and made me feel completely unworthy. I'm old, tired, and in pain. I have to get ready to meet my maker in peace. I've prayed and cried and felt I had to atone for it all my life, which is so sad because Jesus has already atoned for it. He died so that we don't have to be tormented like that. And if anybody is in that situation, please call Pregnancy Counselling Services, PCS, because they can really, really help. Now, maybe among the worst scenarios would be something like the suicide of a family member or the death of a child in some kind of tragic and preventable accident. Those things can just be horrible for producing guilt. But, you know, there, God can help. Now, sometimes it really helps to put our guilty feelings under the microscope. And um, there are times when I've used a little process. It's called, just called a, I call it the guilt trip sheet, I'll put a pile of them out on the info desk. If anyone's really struggling, you might want to pick one up. If it's a huge, big thing, you might want someone to help you work through it. 
Um, I've done this process with a couple of people and it's been so helpful. And the end is either like not guilty, let it go, or guilty, but it looks at all the contributing factors. So sort it out, receive forgiveness, learn from it, let yourself off the hook and move on. I went through this with someone who was really suffering over the suicide of a family member. And it took ages and we wrote heaps, we wrote and wrote and wrote, but it really helped them to deal with the guilt that they were going through in that situation, really, really helped. I did the same exercise with a lady who did something at a time of great loss and grief. And it wasn't a sin and it wasn't a crime, but it really was drastic and family members just turned against her and it's like she just fell into this abyss of guilt and it just went on and on. So we put that whole scenario under the microscope and again we took ages and wrote screeds. But at the end of it, she was free. And both of those people never lost that ground that they made by putting that under the microscope and really having a good look at it. Now another thing that's really good to put under the microscope is God's word. And I just want to have a a quick look at um, one of my favorite verses, as you all know. 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I just want to look, look at that almost word for word in some ways. If, if we confess our sins, if is up to us, isn't it? We have an option there. And then if we confess our sins, we and our tell us that we are responsible for confessing our own sins. Now, sins, obviously, sins against God. Confession is about voluntarily admitting that we have done wrong, facing up to it. Now, just still on confess, we admit that we are wrong, which humbles us, and God blesses humility. It gives God room to work and activates his grace in our lives. It sets us free from guilt. And we know that there's power in confession. Even unbelievers know this. And so, you know, unbelievers will confess to psychiatrists, counselors, friends, doctors, family members, different ones, with the hope that they will get free from the guilt of sin. But, of course, when, you know, without the power of Jesus' cleansing blood, the power of confession is actually not quite the same. But still, there's something in it. Um, When we confess, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Now he, that tells us it's about God. Confession is powerful, but the power comes from God, not from us. And he will forgive us. John is giving us an assurance of forgiveness when we confess our sins. And he will cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness, sin, and guilt. And just a couple of things that are, and all, the little word all, there are no limits to God's forgiveness or to the purification process. Now, we've all heard it so many times, haven't we? All means all, right? 
except for the one unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'm not going into that, but it is highly unlikely, if not impossible, that anyone who is guilty of that would ever be found in church. So don't worry about that. Now, Peter's failure didn't define him, and our failure doesn't need to define us. It didn't stop him from fulfilling his destiny, and it doesn't need to stop us. We all stumble, sometimes badly. We all fall. But Jesus has paid for our sins on the cross, and he specializes in transforming failures into pillars of strength. So let's pray. Jesus, I just, as always, we just want to say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for the great price that you paid so that we could be forgiven. Lord, thank you. Thanks a million. And God, I just pray that you will take these simple words today and apply them deeply to our hearts, to our minds, to our spirits. Lord, so that we don't any longer have to walk under guilt and condemnation when we, when we bring sins to you. God, so that we can know that forgiveness, that freedom from guilt and sin. And God, just let us all walk on and fulfill the destiny that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.